And just like that, we're back. It's Thursday morning, May 20th, the year of our Lord, 2021. I'm Josh Pate. This is the Late Kick Extra podcast. We got to talk about the wounded animal mode theory today, why it applies to LSU, and why it may or may not apply to Oklahoma. Does a title mean as much if you don't go through Alabama and Nick Saban to get it? Who's going to be winning in 2031? And why gambling will not ruin college football. Some of the many things that you have submitted via the Late Kick Inbox, joshpate 706 at gmail.com. That's how you submit a question. I went back and listened to about five podcasts over the past week and came to the conclusion that I just waste too much time at the beginning. You didn't say it. I did. And so you can't possibly be against this. So I'm diving right in. And if I have anything to share with you, I'm just going to mix it throughout. Thank you for tuning in. Our numbers are tremendous. Let's get to work. First up, Andrew says, I like that wounded animal mode theory on LSU's defense you shared when they were being led by Bo Pelini. I think it applies to Oklahoma's defense when Alex Grinch first got there and maybe the playoff too. What will it take for Oklahoma to shake that and win a playoff game? Now, for those that didn't catch that whole wounded animal mode theory, it went a little something like this. LSU's defense was grade A hot garbage last year. They don't even deny that. I think maybe the blame is where we can disagree. The blame a lot of times is just placed at the feet of the players and maybe the coordinator too, but a lot of you, I mean, when you yell at your TV screen, you're yelling at the players. And I looked at LSU's defense last year. I thought they never had a shot. I mean, I thought they were put in such a compromised position before they ever took the field that they really had no chance of winning. They really had no chance of putting a respectable product on the field. Now, that's not just my observation. That goes along with talking with some people close to the program, some people inside the program. So this is not a mystery. They fired Bo Pelini. That is what it is. But then Ed Orgeron had to go out and he had to make a hire. And he went and got Durante Jones, who is the new defensive coordinator there. And when I was talking on Late Kick Live, I think it was the other night, I said the first task there is he's got to earn the trust back of that locker room because a lot of those guys are in wounded animal mode. A lot of those guys came off being in the locker room when they won a national championship. If they weren't starting, they were in the locker room. And then some guy came in and was hired to come in in 2020 and tell them, even though you just won a title, oh, the stuff you're doing, forget about it. We're going to do it a different way because my way works. Well, it didn't work. And so they were lied to. They were misled. And what do you do when you get misled? Well, you get scarred. Emotionally, you get scarred at the very least. And so then you kind of back into a corner and you don't trust people as much because the same guy that hired Bo Pelini just hired Durante Jones. So Durante Jones comes in, and the first thing he's got to do is he's got to go over there as several members of that defense probably curl up in a corner and get in a defensive position. He's got to say, oh, no, no, it's okay. It's okay. I'm not here to hurt you. I'm here to help you. The bad man's gone. I'm here now. So come on. There you go. Come on. And then, and only then, can you start to resurrect the defense at LSU to be what it's supposed to be. But that's wounded animal mode. Wounded animal mode is you go into it and you're closed off from the world and you're not really interested in what anyone has to say. You're looking out for your own self-interest. I don't blame those guys at LSU because I'd be the same way. Think about it. I don't care where you are. I don't care who you are. You could be driving a, a forklift in Frankfort, Kentucky right now in a warehouse. If everyone who you were told to trust told you to do something and you did it and it didn't work and all of the shelves in the warehouse came crumbling down and all you looked around and said was, I did what I was supposed to do and people criticized you anyway. And then all those leaders got fired, but you're still there. Well, what would you think when the next team came in? You know, so some of us have been in that position, maybe not in sports, but in a different walk of life before. So that's what I said about LSU. Well, then we got the question here uh, from Andrew about Oklahoma. But Andrew, I think it's a little bit different. So what Andrew's saying 
is Oklahoma's gotten to the playoff a couple of times, but they haven't been able to win a national championship. Does that put them in wounded animal mode? I don't think it does at all. That's my personal opinion. Now, Oklahoma fans, if you want to disagree, I'll certainly listen to you. I don't think they're in wounded animal mode at all because I don't think that anyone watched them even play against Georgia. That's their best shot that they've had. Maybe some people thought they were going to win that, but that was an overtime game. They didn't get blown out. That doesn't put you in wounded animal mode. That puts you on a bus to the airport, on a plane on the way home, and you're mad. But you're not in wounded animal mode. I mean, you're ready to go to work again the next day. Now, when you go up against Alabama and they're up 28 nothing in the Orange Bowl, that's not fun at all. But they were not favored in that game. They were a double-digit underdog in that game. Same with LSU. They go up against LSU. That's one of the greatest teams that you've ever seen in the history of college football. And they got splattered all over the place. But what I'm just trying to remind you is we all calibrate this based on expectation. How many of you didn't expect Oklahoma to get run out of the building? How many Oklahoma fans didn't expect Oklahoma's defense to get shredded up and down the field? They all expected it. So it's been a different progression for Alex Grinch, who's the defensive coordinator at Oklahoma. When he came in, I was very excited, as were their fans, as they should be. But it was going to take a minimum of two years just to overturn the defensive personnel. It was going to take that long. And you had to rewire philosophically some things about the program and about the just that side of the ball. But they've done that now. And as it relates to this year moving forward, I was doing a radio with our buddy Sean Fox down in Louisiana the other day. And we were talking about this. I know some fans are going to be very slow to come around on the idea that Oklahoma is a legitimate national championship contender. And remember our philosophy. There's a big difference in being a playoff contender and being a championship contender. Notre Dame has been a playoff contender. Notre Dame has not been a championship contender. There's a big difference in making that semifinal and winning that final. But Oklahoma, I think they're there now. I could reasonably assume that they're good enough to win a national championship this year because I think they're good enough defensively. But some of you, and I understand this, I don't criticize it, but some of you are in the have-to-see-it-to-believe-it camp. You haven't seen Oklahoma play defense that good, but really, guys, you have if you were paying attention at the end of last year. It started to really coalesce at the end of last year. A lot of those pieces are back, and you're a further year into being ingrained in that Alex Grinch system. Andrew, you asked, what is it going to take? This is what it's going to take. It's going to take having a defense that is at a high enough caliber to play complementary football with the offense they always have there. And I said the other day, I probably will continue to say this over the summer, this is the first time I've come into a season, and my biggest question about Oklahoma is not defense. I think my biggest question is going to be quarterback play there, which sounds out of left field. I'm not calling quarterback a question. I have a question about quarterback play there. See, Spencer Rattler is number one on everyone's Heisman board. So understand when we talk about Spencer Rattler, we're talking about him from the baseline of that being the expectation. I wonder if he's going to be that good this year. I think he's a very, very good player. There's a difference in being very good and being elite. Is he going to ascend from being very good, which he was last year, to being elite? Or, on the other side of that token, which no one ever wants to acknowledge, could it possibly be that we've just seen what Spencer Rattler is? And if that's the case, is that good enough to win a title? Maybe he is. This is not meant to be critical in any way. That's just one of the questions I have. But I think it's a testament overall to where Oklahoma football is now that my biggest question about them coming into the season is finally going to be something other than defense. Because the way I'd look at that statement if I were an OU fan is, hey, if this dude's biggest question about us is quarterback, we're going to be fine because we got quarterback figured out. And with that, we roll on. David is up next. He says, we all know and see that gambling in sports has massively increased as of late. And we've seen that it's great for total viewership and general buy-in as a viewer. However, is there a world where gambling could ruin college football or any sport for that matter? If so, how? 
David, I don't think so. I know there used to be some fears that I always thought were unfounded, and it turns out largely they were with some anecdotal examples to the contrary. It used to be that everyone thought, well, if you mix gambling into sports, and even especially if you legalize gambling, then you're going to have fixing of games. No, you're not. Not any more than you would have anyway. Because gambling, well, first off, the fact of the matter is it's been around for a long time. Some of us, <coughs> excuse me, mm, let me rephrase. Some of you people, hashtag you people out there, were betting on this stuff already. Long before it came legalized, when the rest of us, we, the law-abiding citizenry of this great country, let me check with legal, yep, all right, thumbs up, thumbs up, okay, that's good, we can roll with that. Yeah, so it's always been around, now it's legalized, but my point is, there is no entity on the face of this planet that is better at regulating and maintaining the integrity and sanctity of sports than odds makers and the overall gambling community. You think you could spot when something's wrong, they've spotted it before it's ever even happened. Because a lot of times if something's going wrong, it's happening so someone can profit off of it. So they see that action before it ever even happens. I know of a game back in the early 2000s. I'm not going to go into specifics. I've not been given permission to. There was an NBA game several years ago. Why in the world you would try and fix a pro sport is beyond me. But there was an NBA game where there were some red flags that went up several hours before tip-off. And the officiating crew was pulled off of this game because there were irregularities that were spotted, and it was able to be sniffed out. It wasn't sniffed out by a local beat reporter. It wasn't sniffed out by a fan that said, something's not right here. Guess who sniffed it out? Yeah, monitors way out in the desert sniffed it out. And you never even heard about it. So all's well that ends well there. I don't know who won that night. I can tell you the gamblers didn't know. And so my point with that is, it's always been this misnomer, this straw man that, well, when you have this in the sport, things are going to be fixed. Things are going to be rigged. Most of the time, the people who are saying that are the ones who claim that sports are fixed and rigged already anyway. A little sidebar here. This is only going to last 15 seconds. Did you ever notice that the people who claim sports are rigged, it's only rigged when your team loses, first off. Secondly, these are the same people who make fun of folks who watch pro wrestling. So let me get this straight. You make fun of people who watch pro wrestling because you claim it's fake. But then you also watch sports, but when things don't go the way you want them to, you claim that's rigged, but it's okay to watch that rigged sport in one breath, even as you hate on people in the next breath who watch a product where the outcome is predetermined, but it's also referred to as sports entertainment. Beautiful. But anyway, so I think that was largely a straw man, like I said, David. Here's the only aspect that I would add to the equation. So David, you mentioned it in your question. As you have more proliferation, there's that word again, proliferation of gambling, then you also have higher viewership, you have more interest, and you have more passion. Now, David, you didn't necessarily use that word, but I think a lot of people do. I don't think there's more passion in a sport when you gamble on it. You may have interest, you may have vested interest in ways other than you would normally have if you were just watching UNLV versus Fresno State on a Thursday night, but I don't think there's more passion for the sport. There's more passion for a side or a total or whatnot, but what you have in the NFL that I'm not crazy about seeing coming to college football, but it's already here, so you can't do anything about it. In the NFL, a mixture of gambling and fantasy has created this entire culture where certainly it's the most popular sport on the face of the earth and would be without it. But what it's done is it's created a huge, and I didn't mean a huge subculture of people who would refer to themselves as NFL fans. And then you ask them, oh, what team? And they'll tell you, I, I don't have a team. It's just I'm an NFL fan. What do you mean? Well, I pull for the guys who are on my fantasy team, 
and I, you know, have a rooting interest for the teams that I bet on every Sunday, but I don't have a team. A lot of you find that hard to relate to. Now, some of you are part of this, and then some of you are a mixture. Maybe, let's say, you're a Tennessee Titans fan, and you have your fantasy team, and you do bet, but your general policy is you don't bet against the Titans, you can bet for them, but some of you just don't have action on your team, period. Look, my point is, you'll see as gambling increases on college football, you'll see a bigger subculture that is tied to the sport in a more arbitrary sense than a specific sense. So they're not Texas fans. They're not Oklahoma State fans. They're just fans of whoever they bet on. And that's okay. Just understand it's a different kind of fan in the room than what you're used to the fabric of college football being. So it's not bad. It doesn't ruin anything. It's just something that you're going to notice that maybe you didn't notice the last 20 years. Also, don't bet parlays. But do follow me on Twitter and Instagram, at LateKickJosh. I wanted to make sure and give you guys a shout-out. The Twitter account is verified now. Instagram will be soon. Uh, That is because of you. So thank you so much for that. Anybody out there, and I mean anybody out there, who is sharing screenshots or giving us shout-outs in your Instagram story or on Twitter, those are my favorites. They are getting shared. That's it. That's all. They are getting shared. If you put it out there, I'm sharing it. So thank you for that. And uh, please continue to do so because we are getting a lot of traction there because of that. All right, let's roll on this morning. Chris had a question, and I get a sneaking suspicion Chris is not the only one who thinks this, so let him speak for all of you that feel this way at least. Chris said, I heard some say Jimbo Fisher's 2013 national title doesn't carry the same value because he didn't have to go through Nick Saban to win it. Does that affect your perception of that title, and do you think it could affect perception of the next coach or team to win one without going through Saban? I want to pause and I want to let you consider how you feel about this. Some of you may have already arrived at a conclusion. How many of you feel this way? To be clear, what he's saying is in 2013, Jameis Winston, the Knowles, they go out to Pasadena, they beat Auburn, actually, to win a national championship. And there are people out there who say, well, it doesn't mean as much because they didn't have to face Nick Saban. It's kind of invalid because Alabama wasn't in the game. How many of you feel this way? Because I got to tell you, there is not an ounce of JP here that agrees with that sentiment. This is sports, man. Unless Alabama was barred from competition that year, as far as I could tell, they competed on the same football field that everyone else did. In fact, they competed on the same field that Auburn team that Florida State beat did, and that Auburn team beat Alabama. It's called the kick six. Maybe you remember it. So what are we talking about here? Yet Nick Saban, Alabama, they probably had one of the most talented teams. They do every year. But that's the difference between seeding teams and putting them in the playoff based on recruiting rankings, essentially, versus putting them in there based on merit and what you earn. Alabama didn't earn a right to go to the playoff that year. In other words, to put a finer point on it, Alabama wasn't good enough to go to the playoff that year. Florida State was. Auburn was. That's why those two ended up in the game. So no, I don't. Now, if Alabama were to have made it seven games through the season, and then for whatever reason, they just had to stop playing, so you never find out what they would have done the rest of the year, yeah, then that's a little bit different. But no, Chris, I don't view this this way at all. I look at it as every bit as valid as any other title anyone's ever won. The only way that I could possibly look at it that way, and even then, I don't know if it would be the case, but let's say Alabama got in a position where you thought they were far and away the best team in the country in a given year. And then their quarterback gets hurt. Like, let's say Mac Jones got hurt last year at halftime of the SEC championship game, and Florida ended up beating them. And let's just say Bama fell out of the top four. They wouldn't have, but let's say they did. Let's say that's the way it played out. And then someone else went into the playoff that you thought was inferior to Alabama with a healthy quarterback, and the playoff ended up how it ended up. Then maybe you'd look at it and say, okay, yeah, team XYZ, fill in the blank. Yeah, they won the title 
They only won it, and everyone knows this is true. They only won it because Alabama lost Mac Jones for a half, and they got tripped up. But otherwise, a healthy Mac Jones in Alabama would have steamrolled them. I could see that, but that wasn't the case in 2013. And I don't think it'll be the case, as you asked, Chris, moving forward, if Alabama didn't make the playoff this year, and they got a new offensive line, new wide receiver core, new running back, new quarterback, new offensive coordinator, there's a lot of new on Alabama's team this year. If they don't make the playoff, if they have one of those freak occurrences where they lose a couple of close games and they don't make it or injury bites them, they don't make it for whatever reason, I don't think I'd view it that way at all. I'd view it as, well, tough luck. Bama wasn't good enough this year. So whoever wins it, wins it. That's competition, man. That's sports. This is not Xbox. It's real life. That's the way it's supposed to happen. The best on paper don't always end up being the best on the field in any given day. Corey's next up. He has a question that a few of you asked in not so many words. He said, what were your thoughts on Bruce Feldman's interview with Chris Peterson? Chris Peterson, if you're an ultra young college football fan, maybe you don't even know who that is. He's been gone from the game for a couple of years now. He was the head coach at Washington. He really made his name famous at Boise State. And he stepped away. He retired a couple of years ago. Jimmy Lake is the head coach at Washington now. And Bruce Feldman, who does a great job with The Athletic, he had a sit-down with Chris Peterson the other day. And Peterson doesn't talk a lot. I mean, he has not really been all that public. And a lot of people have therefore wondered, when you have some unknown out there, people fill in the gaps and they fill in that vacuum with their own theories. And in this case, it was, could he eventually return? You know, did he just step away from Washington? Maybe because there was something behind the scenes we didn't know. Could he pop up at one of these major jobs when you least suspect him? I think he did a radio hit up in the Northwest. Uh, I don't know which show it was. It may have been one in Seattle. I can't remember. But he did a radio hit, and it was sort of eye-opening because he said things really that you never hear people, or rarely do you hear people in his profession say. So Bruce Feldman goes and gets him and does a great interview. You can still find it on The Athletic. I don't know if there was a recorded version of it. I, the one I read was just obviously a written version but it had Chris Peterson going into very deep detail. And what was uncommon and what was eyebrow-raising in a lot of cases about what he said is there was no canary in the coal mine, so to speak. There was no hidden reason. There was no scandal. It was, I stepped away because I didn't want to do it anymore. Washington was a very good program under Peterson. They, along with Oregon, are the only two Pac-12 teams to make the college football playoff in, well, since the playoffs have been around. And uh, they were good. And he just stepped away. And Chris Peterson's also a guy, I can tell you firsthand, that had offers even before he retired. When he was at Washington, he had big-time offers from major programs, some of them in the Southeast, and he never even gave them real consideration. And the word was, well, he just had family ties that he wanted to stay in the Pacific Northwest because of. But it was always rumor. You never heard him just outright say it. Well, he outright told Bruce Feldman, I just realized there was a lot more to life that I wanted to experience and I was not getting to do that being a college football coach. It's just brutal honesty. I respect it. I mean, I fully respect it. I guarantee you he had his phone lit up by dozens to hundreds, minimum hundreds, of people in the profession of football and maybe other professions that said, boy, I feel the exact same way. Unfortunately, I can't step away from where I am right now, but I wish that I had maybe the financial security and the emotional security that you do to be able to say that and be able to have one of the most envied positions, making millions of dollars coaching a game, and step away and just say, it's not for me anymore. But that's exactly what he did. And one of the metaphors he used was that of a racehorse. Ironically, I use this metaphor all the time on Late Kick in various contexts, none like this. But Chris Peterson said, I felt like a racehorse when I was being a football coach all day, every day, all year, and I had blinders on. 
And that's exactly how you get a horse to run so fast. You put blinders on, it can't see to the left and right. It doesn't even know it's running against other horses as much. It's just running its race. Well, Chris Peterson said, I couldn't see life. There was so much over here and so much over there. And there was so much beauty around me. And I had family and I had friends and I had other interests that I could be immersed in, but I couldn't because the blinders of being a football coach made it all about that. And it's not that he didn't, he, he goes on to say this, I'm paraphrasing. It's not that he didn't enjoy impacting the lives of young men. It's not that he didn't enjoy competition and winning. He's really good at it. Peterson was one of the best coaches in America. This wasn't some middling 500 guy that no one would have missed anyway and probably would have been out the door in a few years regardless who decided to step away on his own terms. It's one of the very best in the business. And he steps away and says, I just wanted to take the blinders off. I had all the respect in the world for it. And if you haven't read it, it's lengthy, but you know, I would set aside 15 or 20 minutes and go read it because I guarantee you there are going to be very few college football interviews or articles that you watch or listen to or ingest this entire calendar year that you'll be able to relate to in some shape, form, or fashion more easily than that one. And with that, we're headed right into the future. Anderson said, if someone time-traveled to visit you from the year 2032, okay, so I guess we can stay still. They're coming to us. And said that either Jeff Collins at Georgia Tech or Shane Beamer at South Carolina has won a national title, but won't tell you which one. Who would you guess? I know these are both programs you feel have an upward trajectory and thought of this interesting question. Yes, uh, the upward trajectory, of course, future tense, because right now Georgia Tech has six wins combined the last two years and Carolina just fired their head coach 15 minutes ago and hired a new one. So there's a lot of optimism. But yet, if you're a doubter, you have tons of ammunition now. My answer is going to be uh, Jeff Collins at Georgia Tech. This is not a slam dunk either way. I could be convinced. I could be convinced neither, or I could be convinced that I'm on the wrong side. But this person, let me just keep in mind, those of you who are disrespectfully yelling at me as you're riding your lawnmower around the yard there, I am not the one who posed the question. Someone has come from 2032. This has already happened, people. One of them won a title. So that we know. We just got to figure out which one it was. Are you going to... If you're going to disagree with me, you are disagreeing with the future. That's who you're disagreeing with. So take it up with future, not me. Here's the reason I go Georgia Tech. I feel like there's something at Georgia Tech that could click that is not clicked. Now, for that matter, this could be said about Carolina, too, because I think that the same stuff that's happened at Clemson is theoretically capable at South Carolina. I think that. It has not happened, but I think that. But at Georgia Tech, I think there's something that's a little bit unique and maybe a little bit different. Because what I think at Georgia Tech is what has previously been viewed as a limitation, the right person could turn into a strength. The limitation there is, of course, oh, it's very, very hard to get in academically. Therefore, it drastically cuts down on the pool of recruits. And even then, you have to entice the recruits to come there. That is not a limitation for everyone. It's just a limitation for most people. But imagine this. What if you got the right coach in there, you got the right staff, which we hope Jeff Collins is, and you had someone that harnessed that in the positive instead of the negative. And he went and found the best kids in America that fit the qualifications, and he made Georgia Tech the destination for all the high-caliber academic and athletic kids. Because I know that this runs contrary to popular belief out there, but there are well more than 25 kids per recruiting cycle that are capable of getting into Georgia Tech athletically and playing at a high-caliber level on the football field. In fact, there are way more than 25. The reason I mentioned 25 is because you don't have to sign 500 of them. You need about 20 to 25 per class. If you're going to leverage the portal, that number could vary. 
But imagine if all of a sudden Georgia Tech became that place. How do you make it that place? Well, that's why they're so big on marketing and so big on branding right now. They have to do as good a job at marketing their product, their program, their brand as any team in America because they have a different set of circumstances there, but they don't have to be negative. So what I could see happening is if among those high caliber kids, they got a big time quarterback, let's say they have a kid, they just strike gold. One of the biggest quarterback names in America is in Atlanta, and he decides to go to Georgia Tech. And then all of a sudden the dominoes and recruiting start falling the way they always do. Not only do you have a high caliber athlete on campus, you got a high IQ kid on campus. You don't fail a lot. The bust rate is very low with those kinds of kids. And so all of a sudden, if you could bottle something up like that at Georgia Tech, it just goes boom. And it keeps going boom. You don't have a one-year wonder when you have that kind of combination of ingredients come together. So what I'm saying is, I know that's hard to envision, but we're looking ahead 10 years. It's happened at one place or the other. Which one is it more likely to have happened at? I think it's Georgia Tech. And I don't know how the ACC would play out over the next 10 years, but I'm also thinking about how many obstacles would be in their way. You know, I think about South Carolina right now, any given year over the next decade, Georgia and Florida are going to be mainstays. They'll be mainstays. And that's not saying anything about Tennessee or anyone else who rises any individual year. But with Georgia Tech, right now you have Clemson, and then you don't know what's going to happen at Florida State. You don't know what's going to happen at Miami. So the path looks easier. They're located in Atlanta. I mean, they're at the intersection of the SEC and ACC. They're in the state of Atlanta, as they call it in the recruiting world. It's its own state. It's like inside the state of Georgia. It's landlocked by Georgia. But the state of Atlanta, if you could just harness that. I also think, not that they would need to, I think if this formula is put together in an effective manner, Georgia Tech would be a national recruiter. They already are academically, but I think they would be a national recruiter the same kind of way Stanford started to do it, but I'm talking about doing it at a higher caliber level even than Stanford's done it. Stanford didn't just go recruit Bay Area kids. They went all over the place. I mean, I remember being at a signing ceremony for a kid in Columbus, Georgia that was headed to Stanford a few years ago. They go all over the place. They can because it's a different pitch. It's a different approach. You could do the same thing at Georgia Tech. It's hard. It certainly would be hard. I know a lot of you can't envision it. But someone came from the future and said it's going to happen, guys. So that's my answer, and I don't have to explain myself any further than that. we got a different spin on a playoff question coming up, which is good because the old spins are already boring to me. We'll do it when we come back. And you know, before I get to this question, when I say the old spins on the playoff conversation are boring, it's just because it's, it's fruit that hangs so low it's scraping the ground this time of year. You look around anywhere right now, and the most desperate people on the face of this earth in the content creation space are either talking about Tim Tebow, or they're talking about the college football playoff, or both, and that's how you spot them. So I don't really want to go down that road. To each his and her own, I don't want to go down that road. However, Rachel Nine asked a different kind of question about this. He said, I'm with you in the four and no more camp. But I'm curious, if we did keep that four-team playoff format, would you support maintaining the current selection process, or would you prefer the BCS computer system? I wouldn't have a problem with either. I am not anti-selection committee. I don't think they've gotten it wrong. I was petrified when we entered into this thing, because when we entered into the playoff, this was back in 2012 or 13 when they announced it, I was not against it. I was okay with it. I thought it was laughable that the impetus was that 2011 All-SEC title game because I thought this was more likely to give you an All-SEC title game. But I said, that's fine, go ahead. Four is not too many teams. I don't want it to go past that, but four is okay with me. But I did not want the selection committee that they presented. I wanted to keep the BCS formula 
and just choose the teams based on that. So I was really against that committee, and I was wrong because I think that it's played out exactly the way it should have. There has not been a single year that these people have selected four teams that were not the same four teams I would have selected. So, of course, in my opinion, they've done a fine job. So we can agree or disagree on that. I mean, I know I'm not going to get 100% consensus on that, but that's, that's okay. That's cool. But if we were to keep the four-team format, I wouldn't really care either way, Rach. I think more times than not, you'd end up with the same teams. I think if you were to go back and you were to look at the way that this is stacked up, I don't think there would be that many glaring omissions that the BCS computer formula would have put in that the committee didn't. Now, I don't know this off the top of my head. Uh, it could be that that TCU-Baylor year, for example, maybe one of those teams gets put in. I can't remember, like I said off the top of my head, what the computer said versus what the committee said that year. But I wouldn't... Listen, if you were to tell me you're going to maintain the four-team field, I'd be fine either way. You, uh, you, you give me four, and I will give you the selection process that you prefer. Chase asked me, are there any early thoughts on Auburn versus Penn State. I don't have any kind of game breakdown ready for you, Chase. Two thoughts. Number one, I remember the last time I watched Auburn go on the road in an extremely hostile environment, and that was at Florida. I was at that game on the field for it. Very loud, uh, very intimidating for Auburn. They were not ready to play. They were not ready for that atmosphere. Let me say that. Uh, Their offense was atrocious, and I think about Bo Nix going into Happy Valley at full capacity. And what I want to know, and this is the second thought is, are you going to white that game out or not? Because there are two home games. All you Penn State fans know what I'm talking about here. There are two home games that are really the only candidates for the whiteout game this year. One is Auburn. That's week three. And then Michigan's a little bit later in the year. Now, I think the traditionalist would say, well, if Michigan's coming in here, we got to white out Michigan because that's a traditional conference game, whereas Auburn, it's great that we're getting that early season out-of-conference primetime SEC rub and all that, but it's Auburn. You know, it's, it's, it's Auburn and Michigan. Which one are we going to pick? Well, I want to know that because that may actually determine my week three travel plans, but I would not tell you anything in terms of who I think will win. I would just say stylistically, I got a hard time seeing that be a 14-plus point win for either. That's my early thought on that. I think it would be, I think it'll be over in about two and a half hours. That's what I think. I had a question last night about why I haven't told more stories like I was doing for a little stretch there on the podcast or on Late Kick Live. Well, I can circle back around and tell some of those again. I mean, I can go in further detail. The reason I haven't is because last year we were given the opportunity to go to games, but it would have been just lock yourself in a press box. You don't get access to any of the players or coaches. You can't go down on the field, so it wouldn't really be worth going. So I didn't go to any games last year. I just sat actually right where I am right now in the office all alone like I am right now, and I just watched all the games on all these monitors all over the place. Well, the thing about that is it's good for a viewing experience, but it's terrible for gathering new storytelling material because that's the best time to get storytelling material is being at games and being around places that the general public doesn't get to see. Well, the reason that I mentioned that is because, Lord willing, we are now approaching a season where everything will be back open up and we will also have the access that we've always had before. And so I would imagine this fall, the drought on news storytelling material will come to an end and I'll have all kinds of stuff for you. That's one of the reasons I keep telling you, maybe some of you will have to see it to know exactly what I mean. A lot more of you have already done it. You need to follow that Instagram account and the Twitter account, at Late Kick Josh, because I'm going to have a lot of stuff for you, a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff, that you just would not have seen otherwise. And it may only be on that account. It may not be something I even share on the live shows. So it pays. It will pay to follow that account. 
Let's wrap it up this morning with this. I did not get a name on this question, but a lot of you have asked it, so let's just have one person speak for you all. Will Texas and Texas A&M come to the same kind of understanding as South Carolina Clemson or Florida, Florida State and resume their yearly rivalry? My answer on this is I hope so. I made a joke the other day when it was announced that J-Lo and Ben Affleck were back together. Some of you who follow me on the aforementioned Twitter account, you saw I put a picture of Ben and J-Lo back together after all these years, and then I put a picture of A&M versus Texas on the bottom. And I basically said, if we can get this back, why can't we get that back? And lo and behold, Ross Bjork, who is the AD there at Texas A&M, pops in and says, oh, not this again. Yes, Ross, yes, this again. I think he was responding to someone else who had tagged him. But um, my answer is I hope so. I have no clue. I asked someone last night, because to be honest with you, I've never bothered to dig all that deep on this. I just know that a lot of people outside the rivalry and a lot of people inside the rivalry were upset that it got canceled, but yet some higher-ups made that decision. And so I kind of dug a little bit last night for the first time, and I went to one of my trusted sources in the Longhorn State, and I said, look, I know this is a very, very old story, and you've probably gotten tired of talking about it, but I've never really asked around to any kind of degree about this. So tell me, number one, why did this thing get canceled? Real talk. And number two, is it ever going to come back? I'm going to read you verbatim the response I got. You can take this for whatever you take it for. The response. Initially, it ended when A&M went to the SEC after Texas got the Longhorn Network. The Texas AD at the time, DeLoss Dodds, was the first to say they didn't need to play because A&M left the conference. Then the new administration came in from the Texas side and wanted to resume it, but now A&M doesn't want to. It's like two exes fighting over nothing other than to try and stand the other one up. It 1,000% needs to resume. It's great for college football. It is such a historic rivalry in the state. There's literally no reason other than pride from both sides at different times. I can buy that. That's exactly what it feels like on the outside. And so I fully endorse that. I hope it comes back. I also hope you guys enjoyed this. Thank you so much for the traction you continue to give the show. Those numbers keep going up even in the middle of what everyone else refers to as the off-season. Not here, though. Not here. Remember, again, follow that Instagram account and on Twitter, at Josh. If you guys want to book a Zoom consultation, those are going very well. I haven't been pitching them as much, only because, well, all the slots have been filled. So I got some slots opening up for the next couple of weeks. JoshPate706 at gmail.com. A lot of you, wisely, choosing this time of year to start a new podcast or a YouTube channel, hit me up. I can uh, probably help you out on that. So for producer Jordan, I am Josh Pate. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your day and God bless.